Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. Once upon a time when I was a wee little girl, I played down by a frog creek that was filled with warty toads, so close to my house. The memories flood back, the sound of their hollow, croaking, as clear as the feeling of mushy leaves between my toes, as I twirled and swung along with only a stick to clear away the looming barbs and hedges whose shadow blocked the pathway to adventure. The memories of losing myself in those towering forests, imagining my stick as a shining sword, passed down from queen to princess, a family heirloom, a weapon that was forged from purest silver and made to destroy evil, yet could no longer, as it had broke while striking into the heart of darkness itself, a terrible dip in the tail. I was so flushed at hitting the poor man who had suddenly come through the bushes that it had taken me completely out of my fantasy. So deep in my revelry, I wasn't thinking. I had whacked him with the stick atop his head, so hard that it splintered into three separate pieces. And I was so busy apologizing and trying to mend my sword that I didn't stop to even think about the oddity of it. Where had he come from? What was he doing out here, in his rags, all alone? With a curl in his eye and a twinkle in his teeth, he grabbed my wrist tight, tighter than paw when he was angry at me, squeezing until the veins were empty of blood and my arm was as white as snow. Where had he come from, this man so ragged, so vagabond, that cast such a twisting shadow? This man who smelled like mud and newborn calves. This man whose beard spiderwebbed outward, whose eyes were so deep in the holes of his face. He pulled me closer into the looming, towering shadow as he stared down, past me, into the ground. He pulled me close enough to hear the grate, all the way down to his lungs. Nary a full moon shall pass before you are called to adventure, children being children. If you are foolish you will go down, slipping inside a dark hole in the earth, into the mine where your father saw a ghost. Before it closes in upon you, trapping you inside, where no light shall ever reach you, and no breath will ever escape. If you are wise, you will not enter, and will, instead, live to the ripe old age of being murdered on your walk home, from work. The memories flood back. Memories of running, of feeling the pricks of thorns and lashes of the brambles. Feeling sharp rocks pierce my calloused feet only for the wounds to be packed with the dirt. Memories of blood trickling down my arms and face, ruining my Sunday dress. Feeling the warm spring air suddenly turn humid and oppressive in my lungs. The taste of iron. I ran even as tears burned in my eyes, even as I tripped and fell, scraping my knees and ruining my Sunday dress. I ran for miles all the way home, bolting through the door, up the stairs, even as my mom, Paul, called for me. 
All I wanted was to hide, to get the mud off, and forget. I dirtied the covers as I slipped into my bed, ignoring the sound of my parents stomping up the stairs, before they burst in so concerned, parents being parents. Mom and Pa were angry at first, wondering why I came home so late, why my new dress and shoes were ruined, and why I was so bloodied. But as I cried in their arms, I told them what happened. Pa was mad, and Ma was sad, but they both understood. Pa wanted to get out there and find the rascal who would tell such lies to a little girl. But Ma told him he wasn't needed here more, and that it was just some drunk vagrant who got his kicks by being nasty. Through my tears I remembered, and asked Pa if he ever saw a ghost in the old mine west of Rouge Lane. He stopped for a minute. My Ma gave him a queer look before he answered. No, ghosts aren't real, he says. I didn't believe him. I didn't believe either of them, even while I played that I did. I took the longest bath of my life that night, as my ma set to cleaning and stitching my dress, and my pa set the table. Ma laid out a pair of her old clothes, comfortable and soft, and smelling like her, for me to change into after I was done. Supper was almost ready, she told me, so I needed to hurry, because we were having veal. I didn't eat that night. I stayed in my room, cocooned in my blankets, staring outside the window at the full moon lighting our field as if it were day. But the forests beyond were black as pitch, with nary a sliver of silver carrying through the leaves and gnarled branches, and I wondered how I could have ever gone through them at all. I don't know when I drifted off that night, too tired to keep myself propped up and dreamt of the kind of job I'd have when I grew up, and how many steps it would be to walk home from work. Weeks passed. It was no longer a terror to me. Though the memory lingered, it was vague, rough around the edges. It turned from Da Vinci to Picasso, as same as the one day blended into the next. Every school lesson was the same, every jaunt with my friends, every honeysuckle me and Pa plucked outside the edge of the forest. But I never did go into those woods. Those were never Picasso. I never did go into them, watching them as closely as the owls watched Who's, and even as my friends dragged me along the railroad tracks, skipping and prancing and laughing. I watched those woods out of the corner of my eye to make sure they never stuck up on us. I watched them, like they were, the place where ghosts live, Bo said. As she pointed to the mouth of the mine shaft, the Rouge Lane mine, that never once in its history had a report of ghosts or haints, but everyone always shivered as if it did. It snuck up on us, just like that, snuck up right behind me like the barbs and hedges. You don't have no ghosts, Bo. Those are just stories to keep you away. From what? She asked, and we all shivered as if it did. Well... Maybe it's just to keep us out of danger, Rose said. Is it dangerous? Bo said. No one's ever died in it. Ever. So it can't be that dangerous, can it? It's just a mine shaft, after all. How long a way down could it possibly go? Nothing bad ever happened in it. Nothing bad ever happened at the Perry house, neither. Before Miss Perry hung herself. In the attic. 
with her feet kicking the windows in the June heat. Something bad can always happen the first time. You want to bet? No. You scared? Yes. You big chicken. You're not going to die, just take a step in. One more. Nine more to go. <laughs> Sissy stuff. It'll be okay. Two. The gravel crunched under me like stepping on a roach. Be careful. Hey, are you alright? Three. How long a way down could it possibly go? Otherwise you're gonna die. Hey, stop it. Four. If nothing bad ever happened here. You're gonna sink into that hole and die. You're scaring me. Five. Then why am I getting goose pimples? And you're never gonna make it out. Come on, let's get out of here. Six. Why do I want to scream? No one will ever find your body. Why are you talking like that? Seven. Why do I feel like... No one at all. We need to go now. Eight. I'm going to die. Except... Get over here and help me. Nine. Slipping inside a dark hole in the earth. I can hear screaming. 10. Before being trapped inside, where no light will ever reach me and no breath will ever escape. I stood inside the mouth of the Rouge Lane mineshaft. It was dark and clammy and cold and stale. But it was just a mine after all, and nothing bad ever happened in this one. Sometimes you get mines that have cave-ins from the explosions from the dynamite, where they leave the workers to die. Irishmen, or children with canaries, that starve to death or breathe in gas, until there's no breathing at all. But that never happened here. Not a single thing. Ever. Happened here. I turned to my friends, smiling, giving a thumbs up. I did it. I beat it. I'm not dead. I'm okay. There's nothing coming to get me. To trap me. Nothing's coming. Nothing at all. My friends weren't smiling. They were staring, like they saw a ghost. What's wrong, guys? I asked, feeling those goose pimples. Feeling so cold, so clammy, so freezing. Feeling like there was an anvil on my lungs. You were saying things, Sue, they said. You were saying things as if you were possessed. Talking about slipping away and dying. How nobody would find your body except... And we all shivered as if it did. Until you screamed. We stood so far apart now. Ten paces was all it took for them to come inside. Are you okay? And no one is all it took for me to leave. Yeah, of course, guys. I lifted my foot. Nothing wrong with me at all. I planted it on the gravel outside. Nothing bad ever happened here. Of the mouth of this mine that goes so deep. Not even a ghost? I was out. I was okay. I was alive. We all smiled and we all walked home, arm in arm, step in step, while I watched the forest all around us. Weeks passed, adventures were had. Months passed, we all grew. Years passed, we graduated. Bo married her sweetheart and settled in. Ro became a teacher at the school, and I still visit her every time I visit my folks, while I myself went into the big city to get a nice, cushy job. 
where I never had to walk home from work. It was nice. Nothing bad ever happened. Nothing scary ever came of it. I never even saw a ghost in my whole life. No spooks. Nothing in the closet. Nothing under my bed. My life is ordinary as could be. And I'm glad it is. Nothing special. Nothing extraordinary. I was never murdered. That man who, looking back now, still seems so much like a boogeyman. Even though I know he really was just some blithering drunk trying to scare a little girl. None of what he said came true. His words were just wisps on the wind. Just tales of an addled mind. Just lies. I knew he was lying. Because I'm alive. I'm living a good life. None of what he said come true. None of what he said came true. I left the mine. I stepped right out of it. I know I did. I, I counted. I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. I did. I know I did. So why? God in heaven, why? Do I have dreams every night? Of being that same little girl. Of being right back there. Of walking further. Eleven steps into the dark. Of the mouth. Of the mind. Until I slip. Past the safety grate. And fall. So far down until no light can ever reach me until no breath ever escapes why do I dream of falling past all the nothing that never happened there all the Irishmen and the children and the canaries and Miss Perry's attic until I hit the bottom until my legs are shattered until my ribs are puncturing my lungs until my head is cracked and bleeding, ruining my Sunday dress. Why does my dream last for hours, days, weeks, months, years? Why can I never wake up until I choke, until I gasp, until I wheeze, until I look up and see a ghost? I was 10 to 11 years old when this started. My brother was 4 or 5. Like most kids, Kyle too had an imaginary friend. And like most kids with imaginary friends, Kyle had given his a name with distinctive physical features. If I remember correctly, the friend's name was Bosco. Bosco was short, pudgy, and had a gray beard. My friends thought it was a bit strange that Kyle's imaginary friend would be an adult man but they didn't dwell on it too much. Bosco quickly became part of our daily routine. While getting ready for school, Kyle would insist that I needed to stop hogging the mirror so Bosco had to fix his hair and beard. At breakfast and lunch and dinner, the chair next to Kyle was to be left unoccupied because that's where Bosco would sit. My parents were just grateful that he didn't ask for any extra platter to be prepared, as Bosco did not eat. He just wanted to sit there to keep Kyle company. Bosco would make his presence felt at school too. Kyle's teacher once called my mom how impressed she was with Kyle's quickly expanding vocabulary. He was learning new words, and when asked, he would say his friend Bosco had said them to him. 
I remember this one instance when a new family moved into our neighborhood. Their kid was Kyle's age. Mom took us over to say hello to them. I remember Kyle shook the other kid's hand and said rather clearly, I'm very pleased to make your acquaintance. The other kid just stared. My mom struggled not to look smug. My dad wasn't all that interested in Kyle's friend, or in anything else his kid did for that matter. So it was mostly my mom and I who got to hear about how nice and fabulous Bosco was. Then came the incident that made us rethink just how imaginary Bosco really was. One day, Kyle and I were waiting outside the bus stop just outside of school for mom to pick us up. This place always had a lot of parents and kids around, so it was safe. Suddenly, Kyle began pulling on my arm, telling me he wanted to go to the store across the street and get a candy bar. I told him we could get one when mom got there, but he just wouldn't listen. He pulled on my arm almost frantically and kept saying he needed a candy bar now. I gave in and walked with him to the store, all the while telling him if mom got mad at us, it would be his fault. The moment we had crossed the street, the driver of a bus lost control of the vehicle and mowed down a bunch of people at the bus stop. It was like a scene from a movie. I was in a state of shock while Kyle started crying. When my mom got there, she hugged us for what seemed like an eternity. She knew we could have been among the people who were crushed. Once we had gotten home and had calmed down, she asked me why we had crossed the street. I told her about Kyle wanting a candy bar. She questioned Kyle, who told her he didn't really want a candy bar. Bosco did. And he's the one who told Kyle to get me to go to the store with him. My mom turned pale. For some time after that, life went on as usual. Mom now asked Kyle about Bosco quite regularly, but he didn't say anything out of the ordinary, just regular kid stuff. But another surprise for us was right around the corner. My mom's sister, our Aunt Rita, had just moved to our town. She had landed a job at the same company where Dad worked, and I remember that she and my dad got along very well. One weekend, my mom took us to see our maternal grandparents. Dad said he couldn't come as he had to work. Mom seemed disappointed, but agreed to take us without him. Nana and Papa too were impressed at how articulate Kyle was becoming and listened with great interest about his new friend Bosco. The next afternoon, we were all sitting in the living room. I was playing with my grandparents' dog. Mom and her parents were talking while Kyle was fiddling with the TV remote. He switched to a channel where the movie Ghost was playing. The famous pottery scene, you know which one, was on. Mom instantly grabbed the remote and changed the channel to the Cartoon Network. Kyle was upset. He demanded to know why he couldn't watch the movie. Mom explained to him that he could watch it when he was older and that it wasn't appropriate for kids to watch grown-ups hug each other like that. Kyle argued some more and Mom again told him he wasn't old enough. He pouted and in sheer exasperation asked why it was okay for Dad and Aunt Rita to hug like that in his bed. Mom was taken aback and asked what he was talking about. Kyle told her that Dad and Aunt Rita would get naked and hug in his bed, just like in the movie. When we were at school and Mom was at work, once or twice a week, Dad would come home for a while, and he and Aunt Rita would hug in Kyle's bed and then get dressed and leave. Mom was outraged 
and asked why he was making up such a disgusting story. Kyle insisted that he didn't make it up. Bosco had told him. Bosco also said that Aunt Rita was hugging Dad right then, even as they spoke. Mom's gaze turned cold. She told our grandparents she was going home. She drove back to our house in a hurry. I deduced that Aunt Rita really was there because Mom came back later that night with more of our stuff and said that we'd be staying with Nana and Papa for a while. My parents were divorced by the end of that year. He wasn't sure exactly what he expected to happen when he died, but he certainly didn't expect this. He didn't expect, for example, to be in a cavern extending for as far as the eye could see, though for a few minutes he wryly wondered if cavern meant under the earth, meant hell. He didn't expect to be waiting in line, as if he were waiting for the DMV. He laughed at the thought and said to himself that that really meant he was in hell. And he certainly didn't expect to end up at a courthouse where a lone bailiff asked his name, manner, and age of death, and plea. Plea? The aisle, the pit, or the meadow, of course. He so didn't expect those questions, in fact, that his mouth just hung open for a while, and then the bailiff announced that he was pleading meadow. He didn't expect, also, the great men at the bench who sat on gold thrones and nodded at the plea. He tried to respond, but the bailiff pointed at the one door in the distance. The trial was finished. When he went through that door, he found himself on the foot of a tower, overlooking the meadow, and he saw people, far, near, female, male, old, young, gray, swaying in the wind like corn. Behind him there had been a door, only a brick wall, so he descended the steps that led from the tower to the meadow. He watched the people, watched all of them sway, until one broke from the pack, walked forward, walked to a small, rippling brook that he had not seen before. The brook babbled from a rock face, on which had been engraved the word, Drink. He thought little of it. Close by stood a cottage, and when he entered, he found to his surprise that it was his, at least, it was the simulacrum of his apartment, as it had been when he was alive, right down to his cell phone, cracked screen, on the coffee table. He thought, no reception where I am, and laughed. Early on, he rarely left his apartment-like cottage. Outside, the corn people were just too depressing, and inside he had internet, music, movies, but eventually he took to exploring his new country. He found other cottages some of which were bigger than they appeared, some of which were smaller, and their residents. At first, the residents didn't take kindly to the new arrival, but soon they warmed up to him. One older fellow in particular explained about the corn people, explained how they were waiting their turns to drink the waters of the babbling brook, to drink and no more remember their lives, to drink and forget, to drink and be lost, to drink and be consumed in the meadow. No, the older fellow laughed. This is not hell. The pit is far off to the east, far removed from the cottages, beyond the mountains, beyond the forest. You do not want to venture to the pit. The isle, meanwhile, is far to the west, far removed from the cottages, beyond the wall, 
beyond the guards with their bayonets. You wish to venture to the aisle, but the guards block it. There is no way around the guards. To the north is the palace of the king who rules these lands. None, the older fellow laughed, has ventured there. He listened to the older fellow's words, figured that purgatory wasn't too terrible a place for him, and he wondered if he'd ever be allowed to leave. For years he wondered and wandered, and the years turned to decades, and the decades turned to centuries, and the centuries turned to millennia, and he stopped wondering but remained wandering. Then he saw the older fellow chuckle and stepped outside and sway and wait his turn and proceed to the brook and drink and forget. That was the moment he decided to venture towards the pit. No guards defended that way after all, and with his exhaustion from thousands of years of just existing, he didn't want to risk guards. He wouldn't go down into the pit. He was still sane enough to know that purgatorial torment did not compare to the infernal variety. But he would be out of the meadow, and he would find his way to the palace of the king. And he, well, what would he do? Kill the king? What if the king couldn't be killed? But then, he couldn't be killed. Maybe risk the guards after all then, because... No. He stuck with his original plan, and he packed food and supplies and set off. Set off for, maybe literally, only God knew where. He soon came to realize that the older fellow had never traveled this far in person, or had lied about the landscape. Only the meadow, and the meadow only, stretched on until, finally, a wall appeared on the horizon. He scaled it easily and arrived at the pit. Or was it the pit? It certainly wasn't a literal pit. On the contrary, it was a castle, its spires rising so high as to touch the cave ceiling. He hadn't reached the pit at all, he realized. He'd reached the palace. But hey, that's where he wanted to end up anyway. Yes, that was where he wanted to be. There at the palace of death, right? Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. As he crossed the threshold, the torches alit, as if to herald his arrival. He saw no guards as he entered the sanctuary and removed his dagger. Yet he saw no king. He saw only the throne, black and blinding. He inched up to it, then glanced at the object on the king's seat. When he saw it, he did not understand for some moments. And then he laughed, for it was a mirror and so he saw the king of death. And he was surprised no longer, and he knew. He knew, for example, about the pit, about the isle. Namely, that there was no pit, that there was no isle. He knew, for example, about the guards. Namely, that there were no guards, for there was no isle to protect. And he knew about the palace. Namely, that he had gone nowhere that he was standing in his cottage in his meadow. He knew how he knew about the meadow only and only the meadow, how the meadow is all and all is the meadow, world without end. For a moment he laughed at the triumph of death, then he grew wiser and chuckled. When he left his cottage and stood with the others, swaying in the wind like corn, he thought of nothing. This was wise of him. Soon it was his turn. He proceeded to the brook, plunged in his hands. How warm it felt. Too warm and soft like milk. 
cupped the water and drank. It started the very first night he spent at home after suffering through a grueling couple of months in the hospital. A cold breeze gently wafted through the open window, making the wind chimes sing playfully and sending a comforting tingling down my back as I laid curled up next to my husband. Bright beams of moonlight basked our spacious bedroom in a pale white glow, turning the soft curtains translucent as they swayed with the wind, giving them an almost ethereal quality. I couldn't keep a wide smile from stretching my lips as I watched his chest rise and fall rhythmically. It had been so long since I had slept with my head on his broad chest, letting his heartbeat gently lull me to a deep slumber with his arms wrapped around me protectively. I didn't have to look at the long scar just above his sternum to know that I would never get to sleep that way again, but that was perfectly fine with me, as long as I got to wake up next to him every morning. I remember the fear. I remember it all. The fear that made my heart skip a beat when I found him lying face first on the ground next to the car. The anxiety that wormed its way into my belly, seemingly taking a permanent place in there as I held his hand in the ambulance. The devastation and hopelessness that threatened to shred my sanity to pieces when the doctor gave his diagnosis. The impatience that made me chew my nails and hair as I waited for that call from the hospital, and the nervousness that caused me to stab my palms with my fingernails, drawing blood from them, while I sat on the metal chair outside the operating theater, incessantly tapping my foot. But most of all, I remember the love in his eyes and in his smile as he held my hand and comforted me, even as he was surrounded by machines that whirred and beeped threateningly. He was the one who helped me stop the madness of it all from overwhelming me when it definitely should have been the other way around. He was my rock when his own body was crumbling to pieces, steadfastly holding on to weak and flickering flames of hope when I was on the verge of collapsing into a dark pit of despair. I didn't think he'd make it through all that, but he did. Now as he likes to say it, we fought our way through it, and he was finally back where he belonged, seemingly safe from danger for at least the foreseeable future, which is why the subsequent events took such a heavy toll on me. My eyes were droopy and I was happily drifting off to sleep when I was jolted back to full alertness as his body tightened up next to me. Veins in his arms began to pop out as his hands balled up into fists, making the sheets slither off me. I got up on my elbows to see what was wrong when his eyes shot open. Sharp, icy blue pebbles that glinted in the moonlight. They were far from what I was so familiar with. Those warm brown eyes that looked like they had been dipped in honey. Drove, I whispered, gently shaking his shoulder. Are you okay? His mouth opened, and then began moving as he started mumbling something under his breath. I leaned towards him, strained my ears, to catch what he was saying. Get away, he breathed. Get away! Get away! Get away! Drav, I whispered again, my voice quivering this time. Get away! He screamed, making me jump back in fear. I looked in abject terror as his mouth turned into a vicious snarl 
his teeth gnashing hatefully and his body trembling violently as he kept on muttering like a man possessed, Get away, get away, get away. He sat up straight, his eyes focused on the wall in front, and continued with his frightening ramblings. Get away, get away, get away. The words echoed around in the room with such ferocity that my heart pounded in rhythm with them. I finally snapped out of my fear, darted towards the light switch and flipped it on, blasting the room with the harsh white hue of the fluorescent tube. This ended whatever was happening with him, because the next I looked at him, his eyes had softened back to a more familiar shade and were darting around, revealing his confusion. What? He croaked, his voice harsh with dryness. What happened? That's what I want to know, I replied shakily. He had no recollection of his strange behavior, and the only thing he remembered after going to bed was sitting upright in bed and looking at my terrified visage. Everything in between was a complete blank, and as if those memories had just been swallowed up by a black hole. He insisted that he was just asleep, but I knew better. I saw him writhe and mumble pure insanity. It was like in those couple of minutes he was... someone else. I couldn't help but think of the strange color. I couldn't help but think of the strange change in color. I couldn't help but think of the strange change in the color of his eyes, but then chose to dismiss it as a mere trick of the moonlight, for my own sanity. He swore that he felt fine, but I insisted on calling an ambulance, and so after a short argument, we settled on visiting the hospital ourselves. To my relief, mixed with a dash of shame-filled dismay, all the tests came back perfectly fine. ECG, blood pressure, etc. All how they should be. His body was adapting very well to the changes, and the doctor even refused to prepone his regularly scheduled biopsy before pulling me aside and asking me about my mental well-being. I vehemently disagreed that anything was wrong with me, that the stress and lack of sleep had made me hallucinated at all, but ultimately agreed to get some rest and come back if something like this happened again. It wasn't easy, but I tried to put that incident aside, to dismiss it as an aberration or a weird glitch in the system and move on with my life. And I'd almost succeeded when it happened again, and again, and again, with increasingly alarming frequency. Sometimes I would find him in the rocking chair, staring off into the distance with sharp, cerulean eyes but they would be gone as soon as I'd showed his name, retreating into their hiding spot as he was jolted back to reality. Then there were times where I'd find him thrashing around in bed or mumbling strange things under his breath while walking aimlessly around. I mean scowl on his face and his eyes a now familiar alien hue. But the most terrifying of it all were the times I would wake up at night to find him lying on his side staring at me and whispering right into my ears about how he wanted to kill me. I was afraid of losing him to something beyond the scope of rationality. He would never remember any of it, and successive trips to the hospital only ended up with me being prescribed medicines for stress and anxiety. It was a painfully slow and frightening descent to madness for the both of us, one that came to a head on a night too different the one that started it all. A loud crash from somewhere downstairs woke me up with a start. 
my heart pounding in my crusted, bleary eyes, blinking in exhaustion and confusion. I noticed that his side of the bed was empty, with the sheets a crumpled mess near the foot of the bed. I quickly slipped on my slippers and bounded down the stairs, calling out his name along the way. I nearly peed my pants when I found him. He was sitting on the dining table, violently wrapping some barbed wire around an aluminum baseball bat. The wire had cut into his flesh at many places, and blood was dripping down and staining the expensive wood. His face was warped into a snarl. He sat mumbling murderous things, as his ice-cold blue eyes glinted maliciously under the light that crept out of the kitchen storeroom. I'll kill you, you piece of shit. Just you wait, you little bitch. The guttural quality of his voice terrified the ever-living hell out of me, and I did the unthinkable. I ran upstairs and called the cops on the love of my life. I was crying and blubbering as I tried to tell the police officer what I was going through. When I heard the front door of the house swing open with a loud creak, I pulled the curtains aside and peered out the window to see him making his way towards his car, his unholy murder weapon slung over his shoulder. What in the world? Where was he going at this time of night? Keeping the cops on the line, I took the keys to my car and followed after him. He was just making the turn off our street when my car purred to life. I was afraid I would lose him somewhere in the numerous perfect grid-like streets of our city. But luck was on my side, and I stuck to his tail as he drove on his unfathomable journey. What was he doing? Was he sleepwalking? He had turned his car onto a part of the city that should have been mostly unfamiliar to us, but it certainly didn't seem that way, looking at the confidence with which he navigated the streets. Finally, we arrived at what seemed to be his destination, as he began slowing down after passing through an unmanned gate. It was an affluent, gated neighborhood, with rows upon rows of big bungalows lining the broad streets. He parked in front of one such house, jumped out, and walked through the wrought iron gate, twirling the vicious bat in his hands. After relaying our current position to the police, I followed after him, ignoring the warnings being blared at me through the phone. The house belonged to one Bashir Ahmadi, and had a well-kept lawn with a gravel path leading to the front door. Daruv ignored this, and slipped around to the side of the house, smashing through a glass window and jumping inside. The screaming started immediately. My heart sank as I heard the high-pitched screeching of a little girl. No. No. What, what was he doing? He couldn't. I gulped as I hurried over to the broken window and looked inside the house, using my phone's flashlight feature to illuminate the dark room. What I saw in there haunts me to this day. My husband. My husband was wailing on some naked man with his bat, brutalizing him beyond recognition. The weapon slammed into his bones with sickening thuds as the barbed wire slashed away at veins and flesh, turning him into a gooey mess. I saw a little girl huddled into a corner, sobbing hysterically as Druff screamed at the man he was murdering, interspersing each word with a swing of his bat. Don't freaking touch her. He was going to kill him. I screamed, Druff, please stop. He ignored me and continued to pound the man. Please, you're going to kill him. Stop. He froze before looking at me, 
His tear-filled blue eyes gleamed under the glow of the flashlight before fading away, letting my scared and confused husband come back. It didn't take long for the cops to find out exactly what happened. Bashir Ahmadi, a businessman who had immigrated from Iran with his family, had died in a car crash some time back, leaving behind his distraught wife and a 12-year-old daughter. Taking advantage of his wife's grief, a predator wormed his way into their lives, acting like a good and supportive man as he zoomed in on his target. He attacked little Uzma as soon as he had the chance, threatening to murder her and her mother to secure her silence as he continued to traumatize the child every instance her mother left them alone with each other. Thankfully, he definitely won't be attacking anyone anymore. Hell, he was so badly brutalized he was declared too disabled to be imprisoned, requiring the assistance of medical professionals to survive. It took a long time for Uzma and her mother to heal from the pain and the guilt, but together they did fight their way through it, and we knew that because they strongly insisted that we be involved in their lives. Drov was hailed as a hero, even though he swore he was unaware of what had happened. Angry public, supportive police, and activist judges ensured that the local hero got off with barely a slap on the wrist. But he wasn't really the hero. A fact that the two of us gradually understood as more information came to light. After all, it has been five years since that night, and my husband's body has shown no signs of rejecting blue-eyed Bashir Ahmadi's heart.